Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortez, the producer and host of today's episode. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Yomaira Figueroa Vasquez about her recently published book, Decolonizing Diasporas, Radical Mappings of Afro-Atlantic Literature, published by Northwestern University Press in 2020. Dr. Yomaira Figueroa Vasquez is an Afro-Puerto Rican writer, teacher, and organizer from Hoboken, New Jersey. She earned her MA and PhD in Comparative Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and her BA in English, Puerto Rican, and Hispanic Caribbean Studies, and Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. She's currently an Associate Professor of Afro-Diaspora Studies at Michigan State University and the author of Decolonizing Diasporas, the book we will be talking about today. Her published work can be found in Hipatia, Decolonization, Centro, Small Acts, Frontiers, Hispanophilia, Post-45 Contemporaries, and Small Act Salon. She is a founder of the MSU Women of Color Initiative, hashtag Proyecto Palabras PR, and a co-founder and co-curator of the digital-slash-material project Electric Marinage. Dr. Figueroa is a 2015-2017 Duke University Mellon Mays Fellow and a 2017-2018 Ford Foundation Postdoctoral Fellow and a 2021-2022 Cornell University Society for the Humanity of, uh, Humanities Fellow. Uh, Yomaira, thank, thank you so much for being on air with us today. Thank you so much for having me and for um, talking about the book. Of course. Uh, I, would, I was wondering if you could begin, before we get to the book, uh, talk to us a little bit, or tell us a little bit about yourself, right? Perhaps um, where you grew up, where you went to school, who you worked with, and who you were inspired by, and how you came to be interested in the topic of Afro-Atlantic literature. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for that question. I think that, um, you know, at the very beginning of my acknowledgments in the book, I talk a little bit about the journey that got me to writing this particular um, text. Um, and a lot of that is tracing the kind of diasporic dislocation um, of being an Afro-Puerto Rican, you know, first generation high school graduate, like really first generation raised in the United States um, with like very deep ties to Puerto Rico, um, that kind of vibing of going back and forth. Um, and so I was I was born and raised in Hoboken, New Jersey um, by, you know, Puerto Rican parents um, in what is, you know, Hoboken at that time was um, had one of the largest like Puerto Rican populations um, per capita um, in the U.S. Um, and so really deeply tied, you know, culturally, linguistically, um, you know, uh, and um, and politically to to the island in many ways. Um, but um, I, you know, was someone who in my house, even though my parents had not made it to high school in Puerto Rico, they were folks who really loved the written word, um, folks who really loved literature, uh, poetry and language. Um, and so I always had this affinity towards language um, and towards literature um, that really shone through all the way through the entire time that I was you know, in elementary, middle school, and high school. And when I went to college, um, which is really a shock to my family for, for me to, to have gone to college, um, I, I majored in, in English um, and studied Puerto Rican studies and women's and gender studies. But that was a kind, a kind of turn for me because up until that point, you know, I had had this transformative moment as a, as a kid of reading, um, you know, a novel by a Latina author. I had read uh, Julia Alvarez's uh, How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents When Summer in Puerto Rico. And was really blown away because I had never um, read anything like that before, um, but still hadn't really gotten it in my head that I could do this for a living or read or write or think about this. Um, and none of this stuff was being taught to me in my school um, as a high school student or as a middle school student. Um, when I went to college, I really wanted to be a high school English teacher and bring this work to the classroom. And little by little, that kind of um, dream transformed to wanting to become a literature professor in college um, and to be able to teach that work um, in the college classroom. Um, at Rutgers, I was really um, thankful to be introduced to ethnic studies by way of Puerto Rican studies um, and to encounter really incredible professors who helped reshape the way that I even saw myself in the world. 
it really was an eye-opening moment to be able to understand my own histories of migration, right? My own um, familial cultures, um, the ways that Puerto Ricans have been pathologized historically within the U.S. context, um, and to think in other ways beyond that, right? Um, and so uh, I was really lucky to have really excellent mentors. One of my mentors as an undergrad was Carlos de Sena, um, who is a, a professor and now chair of the Department of Puerto Rican Studies um, at Rutgers, uh, who's a you know, transnational Dominican studies and queer studies scholar, um, who really helped me. And I met him in my very last year of, of undergrad, and that was a really pivotal moment. Um, I also had really great mentors in the English department there. Um, but then when I went to graduate school, things really opened up for me in a different way. Going to ethnic studies at Berkeley um, allowed me and actually challenged me to look at things beyond just my narrow area of interest, right? So I went there wanting to do a Puerto Rican studies project um, and really looking at Afro-Latinidad and Afro-Puerto Rican literature and culture. And they were like, that's cute, but you really need to like expand and really think about relationally and comparatively about, you know, the place of, you know, the kind of colonial legacies of Puerto Rico, but in relationship to, you know, indigenous, Asian American, Chicanx, you know, African American, et cetera, experiences. Um, and it was there that I encountered um, African literature um, and encountered uh, the the kinds of texts that took me to the work that I did with this book, which is putting, you know, the Afro-Latinx Caribbean work and literature in relationship to Spanish-speaking Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so for me, that was kind of um, the kind of intellectual journey. Um, and, and undergirding that was a lot of, um, you know, honing and thinking through my politics, um, organizing um, in terms of... Um, uh, community, uh, moving around resources from these institutions that, you know, had historically locked out people from my communities, right? Um, and and really redistributing that. And that's something that I hold um, very close to my heart and that I'm glad that I had the experience of, of being, uh, you know, of having access to these spaces as an undergrad, which was kind of like a huge, like I said before, shock to my family. <laughs> um, but then being able to kind of hone those practices you know, going forward, both through undergrad, grad school, and now as a faculty member. Yeah. And I think hearing about your trajectory, especially within ethnic studies and, and you know, relational ethnic studies compared to ethnic studies, it's so clear how this book comes to be now, right? And especially with the fabulous preface that you have um, as a historian, I'm like, okay, this is going on every syllabus, right, of mine. Because um, I think the preface, the preface does so much for understanding the vastness of Spanish colonization and its aftermath in the Caribbean and Africa. And so I'm curious as to like, so like, I'm, I'm curious as to like, um, you're, you're deciding to put the preface in the book. What, 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 um, for you, right. What, what purpose does the preface serve, um, laying out this, like this brief history with that, that really sets up the entire book. A hundred percent. I mean, there's a few things that went into it. First of all, the preface was as part of the introduction. Um, and I think some of the readers and the editors were like, that is too long. Like your introduction is way too long and you need to cut out this history part and just jump into what the book is about. But for me, that didn't feel right because I think we need to understand, like to understand the stakes of the work, you need to understand the kind of historical implications and the long history of relationships between the Caribbean um, between Spanish-speaking Africa, um, the long arm of the Spanish, right? Um, and I couldn't make it so because I was already over the <laughs> word limit of the book. Um, but I am really, um, I was really uh, kind of determined to be able to put in um, this this beginning of the book to show that the kinds of, you know, I'm not making up this relationship between the Caribbean and Spanish Africa. Instead, this is something that um, if we look across the Atlantic, if we look at these kind of long durée histories, we can see the importance of years like 1898. We can see what happens before that, right? We can see um, the impact of 1492 across the sea in Equatorial Guinea. We can see the overlapping empires of, you know, Portugal and Spain. Um, um, we can look at the Philippines and, you know, the Pacific Islands and then say, oh, actually, this is connected to what's happening in Africa. And that's something that I couldn't take up in the book itself. But one of the things that I talk about is the kind of anti-colonial agitators from, from Cuba, from the Philippines, and from Puerto Rico, who are then kidnapped and taken to a penal colony in Equatorial Guinea, right? Talk about the emancipated Cuban slaves, emancipados, 
who are freed in Cuba and then are like deported to Equatorial Guinea. And this is just some of the historical crossings that I think we need to be able to bear witness to, um, to, to kind of rethink both um, our ideas of Caribbean history, but ideas, uh, but also ideas of like Latinx history, right? Which are oftentimes undergirded by like anti-Blackness and anti-Indigeneity um, in ways that are detrimental um, uh, to our people as a whole, but also to the ways in which we think about um, our histories and our futurities. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think that's so important because your book does, from from my reading of it, does so much of the work of, of lifting, right? Lifting us away from Latinx studies or like like ideas of racialization in Latin America. And we'll, we'll talk about that later, but I think, I think yes. Um, and another thing while you were speaking, I was so, I, w- I was so fascinated with how you were like, in your acknowledgments or in your preface or an in introduction somewhere you say like I can't I would be remiss if I didn't talk about where from where I was writing this book right on Turtle Island the, the, the continuous colonization of Turtle Island and how that connects to larger the long durée of of colonialization in the world right um but 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 get us into the introduction what is what is what in the introduction do you feel like readers need to know to understand in order to to be grounded in the book, right? The preface lays out a fantastic history, but the introduction is something a bit different. What is what is the introduction yes, doing? Yes, the introduction um, takes me away from the kind of historical um, analysis, right, um, of what's going on. It takes me away from the particular, uh, very limited form of cartography, right, um, to a more open understanding of relationality um, as both a concept and a practice, right? Um, thinking through both the kinds of Caribbean relationality, such as like Edward Glissant um, and those folks, but also thinking through women of color feminism and the particular kinds of practices of political relationality that are developed through women of color um, feminisms in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. Um, I also kind of um, put forth a few different um, questions, such as, um, or, or some some ways, like some of the areas that I think my book are in conversation with, including like the kinds of archipelagic turn in Latinx studies, thinking about the ways that we can map and remap places and unmap places um, through thinking about migration. And so thinking about, for example, New York, Chicago, Miami as extensions of the Caribbean, using a map from the book Nonstop Metropolis um, that puts together the, the islands of New York City with the islands of the Caribbean to create a brand new cartography of place and being, right? Um, and so for me, being able to engage in that conversation was important, particularly because I'm looking at the diasporic work coming from these islands in the Caribbean, but also from Equatorial Guinea, which is comprised of five islands and a, and a small piece of the continent up between um, Cameroon and Gabon, right? Um, and the majority of the work that I talk about is coming from writers who are writing from these islands and the islands are just so important to it. And then they're also migrating to the Spanish peninsula. Right. Um, and so I think it's that for me is really important at the same time um, that I'm thinking through relationality. I'm likewise thinking through the kinds of um, ways that I didn't want this to be a comparative project that flattens difference. And so through that, in the in the um, introduction that is titled Relations, I talk about the critical cartographies of racialization, which is a framework that I developed. Um, you know, through that naming of a, of a framework, a, a framework that is not new necessarily, but that I had to really um, kind of reckon with the fact that I am talking about multiple people <laughs> in different places with different, you know, while we have a shared relationship under Spanish rule, we have same histories of colonization, um, imperial interests, right? Um, in our in our nation states, um, dispossession, et cetera. There are some really important differences that we need to, to hold on to. Um, so, for example, how can I make sure that when I'm talking about Equatorial Guinea, I'm not flattening the fact that this is, you know, um, a nation state that is comprised of multiple ethnic groups and that I cannot talk about this as a kind of um, homogeneous, like um, African literature. In fact, to pay attention to the kind of politics in Equatorial Guinea, I have to pay attention to the kind of um, ethnic hierarchies, right, and what that looks like. At the same time that when I'm looking at the diasporic work, right, the exilic work that's being produced in Spain, um, I know that in Spain, those kinds of differences are not necessarily going to be taken seriously, right? These are in Spain, this is African literature, that's it, right? Whereas in Guinea Equatorial, this is Fang, Bubi, Indoe, right? A Novones literature. And so these things fall across certain lines. 
similarly with the Latinx Caribbean, I had to contend with the fact that, you know, oftentimes we think about, you know, the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic can oftentimes be talked about together at the same time that we have um, very distinct histories, um, both throughout the colonial process and after. Uh, we also have to contend with the kinds of racial um, uh, ideologies of mestizaje alongside um, and, and their anti-Blackness and, and their anti-indigeneity, right? Alongside um, the diasporic um, presence, right? And the kind of impact of hypodescent, right? The one drop rule and the ways that we contend in, in our identity shift from place to place, right? Um, and how, you know, for me, the critical cartographies of racialization is being able to hold a place for those differences to say, yes, I'm looking at the lived experience of Blackness, right? Um, what you know, what people say, you know, Fanon argues is the fact of Blackness, this lived experience of the Black subject. Um, but I am also um, understanding that that is just one way of looking at it and that I have to hold on to this cartography to understand the different ways that people are, are um, uh, experienced, right? Like um, their lives as subjects, especially as they move across space and time. And I'm talking about subjects who are moving, right? Um, who are constantly in motion. So um, so yeah, so the the, um, the introduction does some of that work um, as well as situates this within kind of um, an ethnic studies framework, um, thinking about it um, also in the framework of Sylvia Winter's um, work and the way that she pushes us to think about the word, um, about this new study of the human, right? This new studia, um, and which is actually kind of like the opening um, uh, of the book itself, right? <laughs> um, is is this a quote from Sylvia Winters, The Ceremony Must Be Found After Humanism. Um, and then kind of situating with that within that kind of vein of heretical work coming out of ethnic studies that kind of turns away from just one particular kind of disciplinary focus. Um, and that is both like necessary because of like how I come out of ethnic studies. So it's not necessarily only a literature project or only a history project, right? Like, or only a critical theory project. Um, but I had to balance a lot. And so, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I hope that I did justice to the work that I that I study um, in the book, you know? Um, and so the... the yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, I, I, it's, I think that's why I sort of had you start with an explanation because there was so much happening here. And if I knew I tried to do that, I, would, I wouldn't do it as... I wouldn't do it justice, right? And that's, we need the author to sort of tell us all of these complicated things that were going through your head while you were writing it and constructing it and want us to know about it. So just for example, like on page nine, to think about critical cartographies of racialization, and this is more for the listeners, right? Here, um, Dr. Figueroa writes, um, critical cartographies of racialization helps us unpack and understand how Afro-descendant peoples are racialized in divergent ways, depending on their ethnic or national citizenship, location or ability to move or travel, class status, phenotype, or other factors, right? Like you were just, end quote, as you were just saying, that you have to take account for these differences across and within diaspora um, because they are so different. Um, and then also on page six, when you're talking about the peripheral, you write about how decolonizing diasporas does not look to include Equatorial Guinea in U.S. Latinx Caribbean literature, right? But rather, quote, offers another way of radically remapping Afro-diaspora studies and the Afro-Atlantic writ large um, with Equatorial Guinea and Afro-Latinx as central thinkers, actors, and anti-colonial and decolonizing agitators, end quote. Can you talk more about the centering of, of Afro-Atlantic subjects and their relationality across diaspora and, and the necessity for this as a precursor to decolonization? Absolutely. I mean... One of the things that I talk about um, is the question of the peripheral, right? And in, in the book, I'm building it, and I and I cite Silva um, Sayan and Ramon Hernandez's book, Dominican Americans. And in that book, they argue that if um, if Latinos in the I think they say if Latinos are marginal, then Dominicans are peripheral to that margin. And at the time that they're writing that book, um, you know, transnational Dominican studies doesn't have the incredible boom that it's having now, right? Um, so it's very much the case that Dominicans. Um, at that moment, we're being talked about tertiary, if even if even that, within Latinx studies, right? Um, and so I began to really think and, and um, really think about the question of, of the peripheral, thinking about world systems theory, right? Thinking about all those things coming together in my mind um, and thought about the ways that Equitoganian literature, for example, becomes peripheralized, right? It is not peripheral, it is peripheralized with respect to, for example, African literature. When we think about African literature, 
because Equatorial Guinea, um, Guinea, Guinean literature is written in Spanish and it is the only literature in Sub-Saharan Africa written in Spanish, it doesn't necessarily become part of the canon of African literature, which oftentimes, um, and this goes into a whole other debate about African literature that was happening with African writers um, in the 1960s through, um, you know, the 1990s about, you know, what is African literature, but oftentimes, you know, circumscribed by, you know, African literature written in English and French, right? And these other colonial languages, but not Spanish. Um, also, Equatorial Guinean, you know, and as such, is not necessarily talked about. Uh, Guinea is not necessarily um, discussed in African studies um, or in Latinx studies, right? When we're thinking about empire and Latinx studies, etc. Um, but it it is discussed in um, Hispanic studies or Romance studies um, to a limited extent, um, and it is also talked about um, in linguistics, right? Which we have uh, lots of linguistic studies about Equatorial Guinea and the kinds of varieties of Spanish spoken there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I began to think about the way that, um, even though this, that literature is written in Spain, it's not necessarily thought about as part of the Spanish canon either, right? Um, and so we have this literature that is continually peripheralized. And then we have this Afro-Latinx diasporic literature, which we know the contentions between the islands and the diaspora in both the kind of scholarship and the kind of... Um, artistic work produced in the diaspora as, is it belong? Is, is it from allá afuera? Is it from here? Right? Like that kind of peripheralization of that work, not to mention the kind of um, ways that anti-Blackness um, really kind of excises um, Afro-Latinx subjects in many ways outside of the productions of, of Latino studies, right? Latinx studies. Um, and so for me, really thinking about the ways that um, both Latinx literature in the U.S. is is marginalized, but then Afro-Latinx literature and work is, you know, peripheral to that margin, both in um, in the U.S. Um, and on the island nations, right, or island nation states, um, if, if, you know, for Cuba and for the Dominican Republic. Uh, and so for me, it was an important question to think about um, that decolonizing projects um, should be taking seriously the contributions, the ideas, the thoughts, the culture, the language, the experiences of people on the underside of it, right? The people who are most ignored and silenced. Um, and if we're going to kind of follow that, um, follow that logic, um, then what does do folks on the periphery have to tell us about the ways that power, colonialism, ongoing forms of colonization operate? How can they tell us about intimacy, about, um, violence and power? What can they tell us about futurities? And so I often think about this. I'm very visual, um, like a very visual like learner and thinker. So I often imagine like, you know, if there's like a revolu in the middle of a room, right? Who can tell you what's going on in that revolu, in that mess, in that fight, right? Is it the people that are in the middle of it or is it the people surrounding it on the outside of it that are looking and seeing from afar, from a distance, right? Um, uh, different aspects of what's happening, right? And potentially ways to analyze the problem, and the problem here is coloniality and ongoing colonialism, right? Um, uh, and and offering us different ways to imagine ourselves outside of that. And so for me, I really am so interested in that perspective from the periphery, from the outside. Um, and this goes along with again the kind of feminist philosophies um, and thinking about the act of like faithful witnessing, which is what I take up in the book as well. Um, that perspective, right? Wh where are you where are you looking from? Um, and so, so yeah, so I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it does. It does. And the, and the, the, the description that you set forth, like you said, you're a very visual learner, like turns out I am too, because that description made so much sense to me. Right. And, and, and listening to like, what happens if we listen to the people on the outsides um, looking in, right. And, it, and maybe this can move into chapter one, right. But often what happens is that colonialism and the ongoing colonialism, what happens is that it bears, and, and this is from your chapter one, right? Colonialism and ongoing colonialism bear on um, usually impact um, bodies of women and femmes, right? Uh, and the and and the and so the whole first chapter is about intimacies of colonialism, right? Can you talk to us more about more about that? Can you talk to us about this and perhaps a little bit about um, how Christina Sharp's monstrous intimacies is so critical to your arc of this? Absolutely, chapter? Absolutely, yeah. So this chapter, I'm really thinking through. Um, the impacts of colonialism and the intimacies of coloniality, right? So these ongoing forms of colonialism after colonial administrations um, have been removed, right, from, um, from these colonized spaces. Um, and so one of the things that has been um, important to me is to think about 
um, the ongoing impacts um, of colonization and coloniality um, and the way that, for example, on the one hand, dictatorship, on the other hand, um, uh, occupation, right? Um, both enact forms of um, what Christina Sharp calls monstrous intimacies um, and how we need to kind of both expand our imagination to think um, not only about the violence of intimacy, but also what it produces, right? Um, um, and what I talk about here is, um, you know, Black femme freedom, corporeal consciousness, right? Um, and a kind of quest for er erotic liberation um, and understanding one's erotic subjectivity um, as a place of possibility. Um, and so when, uh, you know, I built in the chapter on a series of different thinkers, and one that you mentioned was Christina Sharp's Monsters Intimacy, and she argues that, um, and this is, uh, I'm going to cite from the book, that thinking about monstrous intimacies post-slavery means examining those subjectives, subjectivities constituted from transatlantic slavery onward and connected then as now by the everyday mundane horrors. And one of the things that I do in the book is I, is I track some of the everyday mundane horrors of things that happened after colonialism, right? I'm looking at um, the U.S. occupation of the Dominican Republic um, and how that is um, retold and reimagined through these texts. I'm looking at the um, mundane horrors of dictatorship in Equatorial Guinea um, and how on this one island, Annabon, the farthest island away from the kind of seat of power, um, is so deeply affected by the decisions made by the dictator from afar, right? Um, how this turns into uh, forms of violence um, uh, unseen before in that place. It leads to large death tolls due to cholera, right? It's kind of neglect. Um, as well as um, exploitation, right, of this particular kind of place. Um, and so looking at the ways that intimacies of the intimacies of this violence of dictatorship and of occupation um, work um, to dehumanize subjects, right? And then I look again to Equatorial Guinea to a kind of uh, a text, the first LGBTQ novel, the first lesbian novel coming out of that canon, the first novel by a woman translated to English, which is Trifonia Melivea Bono's um, La Bastarda, translated into English also uh, as La Bastarda by the feminist press, um, looking at the ways that the kind of double juncture of colonial kind of violence and patriarchy combined with what Melivea argues is kind of fang violence and patriarchy and, hom and uh, homophobia, um, uh, create an impossibility for Black femmes, for Black women who love one another, right? Uh, for Black lesbians to live their lives. Um, and so for me, it was really important to kind of open up the book with this meditation because, you know, it was a kind of prompting for me. It, this was the last chapter that I wrote in the book and I wanted it to be the first chapter in the book because I wanted to kind of explode um, the... I wanted to explore the categories of what these texts were offering us, right? Like these novels, if we were to take them seriously, if we were to read them um, with the kind of decolonial attitude, if we were to kind of, you know, really sit with them and not just read them as this kind of like for, an, for pleasure or for like as an aesthetic exercise, right? Um, to read them as philosophy, as alternative histories, et cetera, tell us a whole series of things <laughs> about the world that we're living in, right? Um, and tell us about um, possibilities beyond that. So while, while the chapter is on violence, uh, the violence of this intimacy of coloniality, it also looks at the ways that particularly Black women and femmes take up, fem um, take up intimacy um, in ways that allow them freedom in the moment, right? It's not necessarily liberation, you know, textbook, definition of liberation outside of, you know, occupation and dictatorship, et cetera. Um, but they tap into their innermost desires um, to fight against the system, right? Um, and to make choices. And it's not always, you know, a positive outcome uh, for them. In fact, sometimes it ends in really tragic ways. Um, but I think that we need to pay attention um, to the decisions that that people under the, the kind of yugo of colonialism make and coloniality make um, to survive every day, right? And to live otherwise and outside of the kinds of roles that they've been conscripted. And I, I love, love to think about the way that Sylvia Winter thinks about the chaos roles that we've been assigned, right? Under this modern colonial system and how we define ourselves outside and away from those chaos roles, right? Um, and so, yeah, so that chapter does that. And so I wanted to just say like, okay, look, these are all the things that are happening. Like in these, in these three novels, like it's, you, we can take this in any direction, but are we 
witnessing it. Like who is who is reading this? Who is watching? Right. Um, and how can we bear witness to what these works are doing? And then that's how I kind of like flow into the rest of the book. What does it mean to bear witness to all the different things that are happening um, in these literatures? Yeah, yeah. And I, that so the flow of the book, I think, is just brilliant. And we can talk about that more, like how I think it's so it's brilliant how you've done everything and like also had like in my mind trying trying to construct a, a book like this would have been like my head would have exploded like but you make it seem so easy and the way you move through the chapters is great but but thinking about intimacy specifically with women and and femmes and queers right thinking about the intergenerational retellings of history like the the, the retellings of histories of violence and resistance and and how this like this active retelling reveals the intimacies of power and its play on people's lives, right? Because I'm thinking about specifically um, La Bastarda and the story uh, uh, and, and literally the the ending of the story, right? Where where the main character ends up going into the forest and like literally to the, to the margins or to the periphery. Like, can you talk a little bit more about that story and why it was so important for you to, to put it in this book? Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the more recent books by Melibia. I think she's written a book since then, but I think it's like published in 2018. Um, and so it's a very recent book, and, and I was rushing to put it into the into this um, monograph because I just thought, you know, on the one hand, um, the literature from Equatorial Guinea is so revealing, right, um, in what it can tell us about these, like, Afro-Atlantic subjects, right, these Afro-Hispanophone um, folks who are often left out of so many conversations. On the other hand, they're also written with such urgency, right? Um, one of the things that I think about is... is um, how the writers, um, for so many of them, they are writing a history that is forbidden to be told, right? They're writing alternative um, alternative narratives to what is there. I mean, in Equatorial Guinea, there's one bookstore. It is on the island of Bioko in the city of Malabo. Um, but there are no other bookstores, right? Like, you can imagine the power of books. Why is it that these books cannot circulate in this population? Um, because they're speaking against power, right? Um, and so at the same time that you know, this is like a tangent of mine, but at the same time that, you know, literature is kind of um, dismissed within the kind of, um, within the larger system of um, the liberal university and within political systems, it is also one of the kinds of materials that is most heavily policed, right? Uh, you can't have it both ways. Either literature is important or it's not, right? Um, and so one of the things that we see is that actually literature is so important and that cultural productions are probably one of the most important productions because they reflect um, the kinds of uh, spirit of resistance of the people, right? Um, and so for, uh, in that book, um, La Bastarda, um, Melibea talks about this, you know, the kind of impossibility of being a Black, uh, I mean, of being a lesbian in the Fang, um, uh, in her Fang community, how in the Fang language, there is no word for lesbian because it is not possible, right? Uh, for a man to be gay, he could be called a feminina, a man-woman, but for a woman, there's no such thing. And so for her, it is the kind of, um, and we can go back and think, you know, I was talking to, um, talking about this yesterday, but thinking about Nguviwathiongo and the way that he thinks about language, right? Um, the way that he talks about language as culture, language as worldview, it puts you in the universe, right? Um, it, it reflects back a reality to you. So if there is no word for you, what does what can that potentially mean? And so what what Melibea does is she puts that kind of central contention there, critiquing the place of you know what happens when you know a woman in the Fang community has no mother and has no father, right? Um, she's a bastarda, right? Um, how her quest to find her her paternal family um, ends up in disappointment, um, and also the ways that the kind of community excise her her uncle, right? Her gay uncle out of the community, burning down his home, right? Um, and then she makes the choice to join um, him in the forest, him and his partner, as well as, you know, the, one of the central things that happens in the novel is that she encounters these three girls in the forest, right? Um, and they, she realizes that they are joining up in the forest to have, like, uh, sex, to have group sex, right? Um, and at first she's, like, in, she's, like, scared, but then she's enticed because she's like, oh, I've always had this feeling about women, right? I've always been noticing women um, in this way. I have this particular desire, but I never even knew it was possible to act on it, right? Um, and so there's a few things. I'm not going to ruin the story for folks who want to read the novel. It's a very short 
um, and very urgent novel of like 86 pages, you know? Um, but one of the things that happens um, is that she decides that rather than try to fall into the kind of line, uh, the very narrow role that her family has set out for her, that she, you know, she goes to this kind of peripheral place as forest um, to live in El Bosque Fang, right? Which has lots of cultural meaning for the Fang community. Um, and uh, to live there with her lover, Dina, um, as well as with the other two girls and her uncle and his partner, and Restituta, who is a sex worker, uh, who's also kind of cast out of the community. And so they create their own kind of community. There's even a baby involved, right, like in there. And so you can imagine this um, as this kind of queer commune of sorts, at the same time that it's not clear that they're safe, right, in that place. And so it leaves you in this moment where she's like, we, go in, we went into the forest to enjoy ourselves, right, her and her lover, um, at the same time, you know, you can wonder if they burn them out of their homes, what if they find them in the forest, right? But I also think about this in relationship to the kind of oral histories of the Fang, right? Where all of these men are, are like lauded and saying like, look, they came through the forest and they created this community. And all of a sudden you have these um, folks who've been excised from the community, like these queer folks who've also gone to the forest and created a community. So in many ways, it's a creation of a new oral history, a new possibility, right? Um, a new way, even though it's not necessarily um, utopic. Um, and so for me, that is an exercise of Black femme freedom, right? Um, and yeah, I just I just really, lo- I love it so much. I can just talk about it forever, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't wait yeah. to read it. I'm so yeah. excited. Um, um, and I think I, I think part of that, um, as you were saying earlier, part of this intergenerational, you know, at least between um, her uncle and and the main character is 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 this sort of um, bearing witness and being a witness to. And so I'm going to take us then into chapter two uh, on page seventy one, where you write, um, "quote I posit that the narratives told and retold over generations are never laid to rest, but rather are conjured over and again." seeking faithful witnesses. To be a faithful witness means to align oneself with these stories, to be haunted by the remnants, and to be stirred by the irreconcilable, and to keep those histories alive. To be a faithful witness, then, one must see the guise of the event and the form of the series. That is, a beautiful, a faithful witness must see past the appearance to the true nature of the event, and then must identify it as a pattern, or rather as part of a long history of such oppression and domination. Faithful witnessing is always already part of the ethnic action of a decolonizing politic, end quote. That is just so powerful. And and I want to, I, 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 I want to say, like what I want to say is that this book essentially, for me, I was reading it as a manual towards decoloniza- decolonization, specifically for Afro-Latinx and Afro-Atlantic diaspora peoples, right? And and I think that's the beautiful thing about this text. And that's just one example of where you're like, this is what it is. Like, this is the politic of decolonization and this is what needs to happen. So can you talk to us more about, about faithful witnessing? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, for me, as you read before, as you, as you just read, like, you know, faithful witnessing is already a part of the ethical action of decolonizing politics, right? Like um, you, before you even think about decolonization, have you been able to bear witness um, to the lived experiences and histories of others, right? Like, what does human interrelationality look like um, for you? How do we contend? And, you know, as I, I build through this, and, and I talk about this in the book, I think I mentioned it at least twice, that as I'm thinking about decolonization, one of the central problems for me um, has always been that I am an Afro-Puerto Rican woman on living in a settler colonial nation. Like, I'm a colonial subject, Right. Um, And, you know, because Puerto Rico continues to be um, in this kind of colonial relationship to the United States, uh, uh, someone who is deemed as being a second class citizen. (laughs) Um, And yet and still on top of that, I am standing and living um, and surviving on the lands, the unceded lands of indigenous people. So how can I be a faithful witness if I don't take that up? Right. Um, And I talk about that in the the chapter after witnessing. Um, But I think that faithful witnessing, um, as I began to think about it um, through the work of Maria Lugones, through the work of of feminist philosophers, was really a way um, to think 
away, like beyond and away from a different route, a different place from continental philosophy, from, for example, Hegelian notions of recognition that always leave someone unsatisfied, unseen, right? Um, Unrecognized. Um, uh, Where uh, for me, faithful witnessing is a a practice that has been practiced um, since time immemorial, right? Um, It is something that in particular women have stood alongside one another um, in his, uh, you know, historically and contemporarily um, to be able to see one another, to uphold one another. Um, and so faithful witnessing for me is, is what happens when you don't collide, collude, right, with um, structures of oppression, when you don't collude with power um, in order to disenfranchise other people or in order to get yourself a cookie, right, in order for you to succeed at the end of the day. Um, and so faithful witnessing is, is necessary and it's part of, um, you know, building a decolonial ethics um, that that wants to build practices um, of collaboration, um, of relationality, um, and one that wants to look at interlocking oppression oppressions, um, and looking at the kinds of weight of um, palimpsestic histories of dispossession, enslavement, etc. Right, um, uh, and so for me, being a faithful witness is is step one. Right, it's it's part of the project. And um, I end this by saying, like, okay, we have to be, we have to be able to be faithful witnesses. We have to do it in, in like, again, and I'm not going to get into kind of like, like philosophical discussions about it, but thinking about bad faith, right? Like, we cannot be bad faith actors in thinking about um, decolonizing um, uh, projects, right? Um, and this is, and this is really hard. It's really hard. It's really difficult to to not put one's own desires, oppression, and feelings at the forefront, right? What does it mean to step step in the frame yeah. for others? Yeah. I think especially like when 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 we bear witness and when people are telling us their stories or, you know, their lived realities, like it is not our place or our job to interrogate. Like it's just, you know what I mean? Like bearing witness is just like that that and you laid out so well. It's just a can you listen, right? Um, and, and will you step in? It's, about, it's about listening and also action, right? Um, it, it's yeah, not, you're just yeah. you're not just a viewer. And in the chapter, I talk about it both, like in like religious terms, right, and also juridical terms as they come up in the novel. But I think it goes beyond that as well, right? Those are just two examples for me of faithful witnessing. And what I try to balance in that was thinking about faithful witnessing as a hermeneutic practice, but also as like um, an actual practice that we take up in our lives as a politic, right? Um, so I'm balancing in the book, me being a faithful witness to the novels while also looking at the ways that the characters in the novels bear witness, right? Um, or are faithful witnesses to the kind of events. Um, and so in that way, I'm hoping that, I hope that the book offers not just analysis, but tools that we could use, right? Um, in, in our lives and in our politics, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that was, that's another point of me being like, this is a manual to like, listen and to, and like put into place right in our own lives. Um, and so, so then, so then you move into chapter three, right. Which is titled Destiero, um, which is kind of, kind of the grounding of the book. Um, can you talk to us a, a bit about it? And I, and I have a lot of thoughts or a lot of questions about Destiero because as you say in one of your citations, like this actually was just a word in your dissertation. Like there was no, as you say, like it was in the transition from dissertation to book that you quote, put teeth on it, right? So I'm curious um, on one end um, to hear you talk about Destiero, but on the other end, your process going from dissertation to book and and what got you or who got you or like what what made you want to be like, I need to put teeth to this, right? Yeah, for sure. I, um... Yeah, I'm happy to talk about this because it was a real, it was a real raucous process for me. Um, when I was writing the dissertation, I had written a chapter on exile. Um, and this was really like, um, the, the word was exile. And I was thinking through exile. I wanted to think about diaspora, but there was nothing really in the colonial thought and theory or the kinds of texts that I was reading that took up diaspora in that way or exile in that way, essential to decolonial thought. And part of that has to, has to, deal with the kind of temporal differences between post-colonial and decolonial thought, right? Um, but also because, you know, we're, this is like, it's not, um, 
it's not a diss, right? It, like this is work. This is living thought, right? Like it's still happening. Like it's not like oh, there's nothing there. You, you know, like what what happened, right? Like it's like oh, we still we still have to build on this work. So in the dissertation, I wrote about um, exile through the postcolonial lens, um, really building on the really rich, rich, rich material available there that talked about exile um, and contentions around um, exile and all of these different facets, like poetry, essay, theory, there's so much. But I knew like in my heart as I was writing it that there was something that was not necessarily speaking to the the specific forms of colonization and diaspora and exile that I was talking about, right? And so I knew like there, there had been, you know, I had read um, Achiobe has this novel for my qualifying exams. And so the, the kind of idea and the word that stayed, stayed with me, it stayed with me, it stayed with me. I had footnoted it in the dissertation. Like, I want to talk about this theater, but I can't do it right now because I have to finish this dissertation. And I also, I have a job now. I have to like wrap it up, you know? Um, and, but I knew that when I rewrote the book, I did not want to just kind of hang on the coattails of post-colonial theory, uh, particularly because it didn't fit exactly right, right? Like it wasn't exactly a perfect fit. I was just forcing it to fit, you know? Um, and so I decided that I was going to take up that footnote and think about this tierra. What does it mean to be torn away from land? Um, to really sit with the books themselves. And that's one of the things that for me was really important is to sit with the text, to see what they told me, right? To, to kind of hear um, and to bear witness to like the way that they are talking and, and thinking through the kind of preoccupations of being torn away from land-based practices, being forcefully t- torn away from their home feeling they have to be exiled or they have to run away, right? Um, or the kind of um, ways that diaspora kind of um, can create um, this kind of like short circuiting, right? Of like, who, where do I belong? Who do I belong to, right? What belongs to me? Um, and so um, for the chapter of the theater, rewriting it um, was, a, was a long process, but it was necessary and really... Um, impactful for me in my life, right? Impactful for me as I turn back to my own kinds of uh, ties to land, um, my own understandings of um, ritual practice, ritual practice, right? Like, um, in really important ways, right? Um, so for me, when I talk about this theater, I talk about the impossibilities of home and decolonial context. I'm not tying it just to exile or just to diaspora, but really I'm talking about these overlapping forms of being torn away from homelands, homes, languages, particular land-based practices, right? But also this theater role for me is not just the negative, right? It's not just that act, you know, what I call it's like the kind of, um, it's a it's a constitutive part of the modern colonial project to tear people away from their homelands, right? And to, to, um, uh, to be able to accumulate capital. Um, but it, this theater also holds the other possibility. When we behold this theater role, and look at the ways that we continually resist being torn away from land, right? Um, and so for me, that is important, as well as the fact that this tierra and thinking about it and meditating on it um, can, for me, the only ethical way to do it is to be in relationship with other people. Because if you already understand the beginning of this tierra, that um, uh, Afro and indigenous peoples, you know, are, uh, and they're tearing away from home is like, the, the cornerstone of the modern world, um, then if you're thinking about your destierro, then you need to be thinking about um, the fact that your destierro is, is made possible by the, the, the destierro of others, right? Um, and so for me, it is, is, is like always already in relation. <laughs> um, and it is not only negative, it is also the, you know, um, can be seen as these forms of resistance projects. Yeah, on page 93, you you have, so you, on page 93, you write, quote, Destiero can become a, a decolonizing tool if, in calling attention to how it is constitutive part of exile and diaspora, it also focuses on the long legacies of self-determination by peoples on the other underside of modernity. And you go on to say, quote, holding this dialectic to understanding the phenomenological, ontological, and epistemological experience of Destiero is critical if we are concerned with not only documenting suffering, but also with marking, holding, and remembering resistance. So this tierra, not just as a as a descriptive of suffering, but as a tool for decolonization. Again, another another practice to put into our own lives, right? Um, 
Yeah, and and so 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 then you use a few examples here, but can you talk about Loida Marisa Perez's geographies of home? Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, so in this chapter, I talk about um, two novels, and one of them is Loida Marisa Perez's uh, geographies of home, where she is talking. Um, she has this kind of story about this, you know, Afro-Dominican girl, first-generation college student going back home, really struggling with the kinds of um, inability of her family to recognize the really deep uh, mental health issues that her her older sister is going through. Um, there's also like, you know, intimate and domestic violence happening with another family member. Um, there is a radical rejection of both um the kinds of uh, an inherited ritual practice, uh, Afro-syncretism, which is not named, but I feel like it's like very akin to Palo um, in the Dominican Republic, but you know, she doesn't name it, but there's a kind of rejection of this thing. And then the, her mother kind of um, re, um, uh, like kind of, uh, kind, um, brings herself back to it because she kind of feels like in a moment, she's like, my children are lost. There's all of these terrible things going on. How can I save them? I wish I would have kept this practice because I wish, I think that this practice could have kept my children safe. And in doing so, she reignites this connection to this ritual practice, to these powers that she has that she uses in other ways, but they kind of rejected the root of them, right? Um, And what we see is that the rejection of um, their um, African inheritance, right? Their Black inheritance leads to so much of the struggle that they go through. But on top of that, there's something else happening in the novel, which is this kind of um, deep desire of these um, uh, women characters, particularly uh, women who are prepubescent and pregnant women for consuming the earth. And for me, this is like another moment in which we see the kind of deep desire to be connected to the land. Um, And so we see in a a few of these instances, um, the kind of, um, from the very beginning of the novel, the kind of desire to consume the earth as the as the uh, grandmother is dying, like you want to be connected to your ancestors in some way and there's like a craving to eat dirt. Um, and then in another moment, we see a prepubescent girl in the Dominican Republic, one of the sisters of the main character, you know, masturbating, um, you know, having this like sexual excess in the grass, like in the in the field on the ground, right? While chewing um, on grass, right? Um, and so for me, it shows both the kind of racialized and gendered aspects of it, the erotic aspects of being um, tied or desiring land, desiring this kind of mooring, right? Um, and then it also connects us to um, uh, like the medical pathology um, that is being developed during um, during slavery, right? The kinds of ways that we see, um, you know, uh, quote unquote experts in the Caribbean, but also in the U.S. South, writing about these uh, enslaved Africans eating and craving dirt, right? And writing about it in this kind of pathological sense. But for me, I'm also thinking about like, what if we think about it in other ways, right? What can this also tell us about people's desire to be moored in homes in one place? What does it tell us about the land? Um, and I build really a lot on the work on, on Jack, of Jackie Alexander, uh, where she talks about both, you know, the idea that you know, it is one thing for, you know, you to remember the land, for you to remember these practices, but it's a completely heretical idea to imagine that the land remembers you and wants to claim you back, right? Um, and so she she um, talks about this in relationship to the idea that we have been, what she says, grown up metabolizing exile, uh, feeding on its main byproducts, alienation and separation, and knowing that as home. So what it ha- what happens when the land remembers you back? Right. Um, and so for me, this was a really important way to think through this tierra, um, uh, and to really develop this um, in a way that could be that could be useful and I hope is useful um, to folks doing work in decolonial thought and decolonial projects, but also beyond that. Right. Um, for me, it was like a, I felt like I had been offered so much and built my work through the work of so many other people that I was like, I just I want to kind of build up this concept because I hope that I can offer it as like a humble offering to someone else, you know, like maybe this could be helpful, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I already listening to some of the other talks you've been in or, or panels, like it's already so helpful to so many people. So I, I know folks are so grateful for that work and for, for the work that just will keep on as we sit with it longer, right? The book has only been out less than a year as we sit with it longer. Um, hopefully only, only greater things come out of it. Um, I know we're coming up on an hour and we still have two <laughs> chapters to talk about. So I just want to let you sort of just, 
just talk, right? About reparation, apocalypso, and then this beautiful meditation on the sea at the end, right? In your coda. Um, so wh- wherever you want to go with this, go yeah, ahead. I mean, I could just briefly, you can tell me where you might want me to sit with something. But, you know, I move on from from this Pierro to think about reparations, right? It's like, it kind of, it's like a, an argument that, that, um, that grows throughout the book, right? Like it's, it's definitely prompts you to the next chapter. Um, and so the question is like, if this tierra is the condition that we're living in, what does reparations look like for us? Um, and specifically what do reparations look like outside of money? Like not, not in, instead of money, right? Like in addition <laughs> to the actual rematriation of land for indigenous people to actual, um, monetary reparations for, um, for damages, for intergenerational trauma, right? For the particular kinds of um, ongoing forms of violence. But what else? Like what happens when we get those funds? What happens when we can reduce the harms done, the intergenerational and transnational harms done to a monetary amount? How does that fall back again into a kind of capitalist um, schema? And how does it still leave us, again, (laughs) unsatisfied? What changes, right? What can change beyond that? And so for me, it is a question of thinking about um, reparation and what I argue is the reparation of the imagination um, and how do we remap our relationships with one another, particularly thinking about um, reparations that might seem irreconcilable or incommensurable. So I have a part in there where I talk about, um, you know, Black and Indigenous reparations, right? Like, what does it mean um, for us to think about it outside of particular kinds of contentions? And I I, t- I give an example of of a of a space that I was in, where you know some some things were said um, that kind of really undercut one another's um, desires for repair, right? Um, and and so I give a few examples on on both sides, and then I asked the question. I was like, well, what is my role as a as a you know black woman colonial subject in these conversations in this nation state that is not mine, of which I am a citizen, but does not belong to me, right? Like. What is my role um, in this conversation around reparations, right? Um, and so we have to be able to hold on to m- multiple realities. But one of the ways that I um, think about the reparation of the imagination and build it through the text um, is thinking about um, what are the ways that we could remap our relationships with one another um, in the kind of um, settler state that we're in, in the kind of ongoing forms of colonialism, and how imagining um, uh reparations and thinking about like really meditating on reparations and what that could look like um, outside of money um, can help us um, put into action the things that we want once we do get as we're agitating for actual reparations, right? Um, And I think about reparations and futurities as well. And that's how I move into the question of futurities. And so I just want to say like the the chapter has like concrete examples of what reparations looks like within um, the kind of Afro- Latinx imaginary, but also within Equatorial Guinea. And they did very different ways to think about repair, right? Um, and But then I move on to think about futurities. How are these um, writers and, and artists and thinkers imagining um, a reparation of the imagination? How do they consent with that? Um, so I don't know if you have any specific question about the chapter Apocalypso, if you want me to talk about that or the sea or... Well, I mean, I encourage folks um, to pick up the book and really... I, I really liked your meditation on decolonial love in chapter four and then its importance in reparations um, and in reparations of the imaginations. Um, but yeah, can you, let's talk about the sea. Let's talk about um, the, so the sea is right. an ever present is ever, sort of ever present throughout your book and, and the text in which you, you analyze because they are, you know, islands, right? Like the, the, the sea is always there. And so can you talk a little bit about how you end the book and its importance in, in the larger context? Absolutely. So um, at the my definition of decolonial love continues to build throughout the book, right? Like I talk about it um, in a few of the chapters and I move forward. Um, after I talk about um, reparations, I talk about apocalypse. when I think about, you know, um, uh, Afro-Cuban Santeria, Lukumi, um, and then I also talk about like the kind of ends of worlds within this imagination, thinking through the work of Michelle Cliff. Um, and then from there, I go to the very end, the chapter C, where I, where I, um, you know, it was a kind of revelation at the end. And I was like, you know, one thing that I haven't talked about in this book is the C and it comes up in almost every book. <laughs> and it's like the one thing that I haven't like, you know, really put my attention to, but it is the one thing that puts us 
um, in relation and in contact with one another. The thing that touches the one side of the Atlantic is what touches the other side of the Atlantic, right? Like it's this, the sea and the water and the histories, you know, the subterranean histories, right, of the sea. Um, and so in that chapter, I I trace, obviously because it's the coda, I trace what the book um, has done, right? Um, kind of like the necessary thing of, of like, these are the kinds of things that I've argued and, you know, thinking about the people of the sea and, and you know, how we connect with one another. But then I begin to look at the poetry of um, Raquel Lombe, who is a, a Ecosoganean poet who's now passed away, and looking at the way that the sea becomes this important dimension in her work, right, as her, as a, as a diasporic subject from Equatorial Guinea. Um, and then I move on to talk about um, two different pieces. I talk about um, Araceli Germay's poetry collection, The Black Maria, where she um, uh, talks about um, uh, the kind of uh, transatlantic crossings and the sea crossings of people, not only through the slave trade, but the contemporary migrations of Africans, in particular Eritreans, um, to Europe. Um, and looking at the way the, the kind of sea migration from North Africa to Europe has led to the loss of over 20,000 lives, right? Um, and so for her, it's a mapping of the sea and the celestial. Um, and what I do with those last two pieces, which is the Black Maria and then the cover art for the book, which is Maria Magdalena Campos Ponce's um, installation, a uh, 12-plate installation called um, De Las Dos Aguas, um, is I argue that these two pieces exemplify um, and, and hold every single part, every single chapter of the book can be seen in these two collections. Um, and I am thinking about these, imag these diasporic imaginations as sites of memory and as possibility and evidence of relation. And then I end the, the entire book with a short paragraph that I title Relations Again, which takes us back to the, the first chapter, Relations, where I talk about this experience that I had bringing two, um, two writers, in particular, one of the writers, uh, two writers from Guinea Equatorial to Puerto Rico. And I took one of the writers and her partner to a dunque, to the rainforest um, one day. Um, and it was a really incredible moment. It was like, it was like a completely surreal, you know, like, um, and uh, the moment where I'm, we're driving up and, you know, you kind of get dizzy driving up through the mountains of Puerto Rico, particularly the Yunque. Um, but it was a kind of um, a veil, right? Like it was just a, this incredible moment where the where I'm bringing this woman who's an older woman uh, and bringing her, we're driving just all these circles through the mountains and we're stopping and getting out. And, and she was like, wow, this reminds me of, of Guinea. Like this reminds me of my, my bosques, you know, my forests, you know? And it was this moment of relationship where I was like, yes, like, I'm so happy that you're in Puerto Rico. Like I've been to her village, right? To her community in Guinea. And now she's here with me, you know? Um, and, and she felt the same thing that I felt, you know? And so for me, that was a really incredible moment. And I end the book we're thinking about relations because if you're like me, I need to read books more than once to get to get it, you know. And so one of the <laughs> one of the reasons I ended with thinking about relations is I was like, this can help prompt someone to start again from the top, like relations, right? So mm. um and I and and I when I was prepping prep so I read the book, right? And when I was prepping going back for this interview, I was like wanted to read the entire book again because I was like everything makes sense, like makes more sense now, right? Because I have these concepts, I have how they work, I know how they're working together, I know how, how you want us to work with them together. And I love that, that, that tool of being like relations again is a hint towards like, hey, you should go back and read the introduction, you know what I mean? Like it's, and, and I think that's the beauty of your work that it's kind of cyclical, like it goes kind of in a circle and it can, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a really good piece of it's a really great monograph and I can't wait to like for more people to read and pick up and talk about and use and to it be um, to be it to be used as a tool for decolonizing not only, as you said, in theory, but in practice. Um, but I think we've wasted, we've not wasted, <laughs> but we've, we've taken up a lot of your time. Yomaira, thank you so much for being detailed um, in, in, in your work and in speaking with us about decolonizing diasporas Um I have one more question for you, uh, you, which is a common question. What are you working on now? What is what is your what is 
what is your yeah what is what is next on the horizon oh my gosh i'm so excited i am working on a new book on a new project it's called afro um i'm sorry it's called archive of disappearances afro puerto ricans at the edges of empire um and so in many ways this this writing this book that took me so far from my original project of really thinking through puerto rican like black puerto rican like culture and history uh writing the book took me right back to that project. And I'm so thankful for that because um, this project is looking at, um, you know, Black Puerto Rican histories from the 19th century to the present through an examination of the colonial archive of the early U.S. imperial archive in Puerto Rico, but then shifting that um, and looking at the ways that Black Puerto Rican subjects are disappeared both from the narrative, but also from the history um, of Puerto Rico. Um, and then shifting that to look at the ways that Black Puerto Ricans appear and reappear um, through other modes of, of documentation, including photography um, and film. And um, one of the things that this project does um, is that it takes me very close to home, not just in the sense of the nation, um, but also in the sense of my family, which is this text is allowing me to trace some of the histories of my own family in Puerto Rico. And it begins with chapters that look at these Black communities in Vega Baja, Puerto Rico, um, and then beyond in the diaspora, um, and really tracing these histories of Black Puerto Ricans through, one, people who are my relations, my actual relations, right? Um, but then also through um, the, the the kind of loving photography of others, including Frank Espada's um, uh, photography collection, the Puerto Rican diaspora themes, and the survival of a people, um, as well as a series of films. Um, and so I'm really excited because it's going to take me from, you know, uh, late 19th century Puerto Rico to the arsons that were happening in Hoboken in the 1980s and the 1990s, right? Um, to the Puerto Rican diaspora project that takes us all the way to Hawaii, right? Like documenting all these families. So I'm very excited about this, this project. And I'm lucky that I will be at Cornell next year for the Society of the Humanities Fellowship because their theme is Afterlives. So I'll be there next year working on this book. Um, and I haven't been this excited about a project in a long time. So thank you for asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, many of us are excited and we can't wait whenever you're ready to share with the world some of that. We we are ready for it, <laughs> um, I hope. Um, but Mamaida, thank you so much for spending time with us and for talking about um, your recently published book, Decolonizing Diasporas, Radical Mappings of Afro-Atlantic Literature. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good day. <laughs>